Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. All right, we're gonna we're gonna we're into uh, number eight lesson: defending the faith. And tonight we're going to talk about the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus. Now. I, uh, just as a reminder for everybody that didn't hear that earlier, this is the last Wednesday night service we'll have for this year. The 21st, which is the next one, and the 28th, we will not have anything going on on Wednesday night here in the in the building. And then we'll resume again after the first of the year, uh, the first Wednesday night service, which will be a regular uh, Wednesday night service with Pastor Travis, and then I think he's going to do something on the 11th also. So anyway, if... Allowed, and if we continue, there's a couple of more lessons in this, but I think we can conclude. This may be the conclusion, so of this uh, defending of the faith. But I, let me tell you, how do you how do you talk about the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus in 45 minutes? You just can't. It's hard to do. There's a whole there's there's two or three lessons that I could cover in that. But anyway, we'll do what, the best we can for tonight, and I I believe you'll get something out of it. It was uh, it's been one of the best that I've. Uh, had a chance to study on and, and uh, to get into. So, as as always, things to remember. You know, we're all given instructions to in the Gospels of Matthew and and uh, Mark to preach and teach uh, the Great Commission, commanded in First Peter. Always be ready to give a defense for an answer for the hope that's inside of you. And then we're exhorted in Jude, verse three, to contend earnestly for the faith. We need to fight with all your might to win and strength and that's the way we that's the way we fight our battles we we uh, we get into the word of god we study the word of god we build ourselves up in the word of god we build ourselves up in our most holy faith and we do those things and then i put in here i had a paragraph there about from the last time we're considered apologists we're not apologizing for anything to the contrary we're increasing our knowledge and understanding of our uh, christian faith and fortifying what we believe in and um, to help each of us, no matter what circumstance or location or person or question, we'd be able to defend what we believe and why we believe it. Because how many of you know, I, and I hope, you know, you've been able to use this maybe in, in some situations or something like that. If nothing else, though, I hope it just reinforces what you believe and uh, strengthens you in your inner man of, uh, of the things that we believe in and just helps us to as develop and build our relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, and uh, you know, Paul wrote to Second Timothy, uh, wrote to Timothy in Second Timothy, two fifteen. Uh, we, we this is where we should always be, and I didn't put this in your in your uh, lesson, but he said, "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, uh, ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth." And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to do the rightly dividing the word of truth when we get into this. So a recap from Defending Faith number seven. Last week, as we moved from the doctrine of the virgin birth, we continued uh, with the doctrine of the incarnation, looking at the respective genealogies of Jesus given in the Gospels of, and that should be Matthew instead of Mark. It's my, uh, my typo. It's Matthew and Luke, both directly directed to maybe different audiences in original intent, but both verifying and presenting overwhelmingly the testimony of Jesus' natural human descent, but also a double affirmation of his right to the throne of David. We saw that in the in the genealogies, how both Mary and Joseph in their lineage come uh, through David. Uh, 
The incarnation was the manifestation of the means in the person of Jesus Christ by which God's justice for the penalty of sin could be satisfied and our redemption secured forever. He was our Redeemer, and the Redeemer had to be truly human in order to suffer and sacrifice. The Redeemer had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. That's kind of boiling it down to, you know, when we talked about the humanity the humanity and the d- deity of Jesus, and this is the things we see in, in this, and we'll see it even more so as we uh, go through this. So now we move on to the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Here's what we believe in our, from our AOL statement of beliefs. We believe that Jesus is indeed fully God and fully human, that he lived his entire life on the earth without sin to become the substitutionary blood atonement or sacrifice for all of man by suffering the agonizing, humiliating death on the cross. And then another part of that is we believe that Jesus' death on the cross provided the only means for man's salvation, our, our reconciliation to God and that each person must exercise their free will to make the choice to accept this finished work of Christ on the cross for eternal life or face eternal condemnation. We call this salvation by grace through faith. Amen? Hallelujah. That's substitutionary blood atonement. This is why we have studied the Trinity, the humanity and deity of Jesus, the virgin, the virgin birth, and the incarnation in this order. We can't fully understand this next doctrine until we have a proper understanding of events preceding and including his death, which is this lesson, that it requires an affirmation of his full humanity. You can't die if you're not fully human, right? So that's what we're going to see and uh, see some of this in in here. So I want to start this lesson in in order that it will help us, in in order that it will help us with the proper understanding by, with an excerpt from E.W. Kenyon's book, The Bible in the Light of Our Redemption. And this comes from Lesson 18, The Incarnation, he wrote. It's a very good book. If you you ever get a chance to get it and read it, it helps you walk through the whole entire Bible in the light of uh, our redemption through Jesus Christ. And this section is about the incarnation. I wanted to start off with this. So everything that's in the bold uh, from this for another two pages or so is from that book. But it was written so well, and it's so uh, good. Uh, I think I'm just, I'm just gonna. I'm just. I'm. I'm not plagiarizing. I give him credit for it. But anyway, this is from that. So so we have come now. Uh, now come to the study of the most striking miracle of the creation, the incarnation. We have seen that if man was to be redeemed, the incarnation was inevitable. Man's need demanded the incarnation of God's Son. Man was spiritually dead, a child of Satan without any approach to God. The incarnation of deity and humanity would provide a substitute of deity and humanity united in such a manner that the incarnate one could stand as man's mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and man, and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So it it continues, being equal with God on one hand and united with man on the other, he could bring the two together and thereby bridge the chasm between God and man. John 14, 6 says, very familiar verse, Jesus said to him when he's talking to, um, I believe it was... um, uh, Thomas, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Also being deity and humanity united as a man, he could assume the obligations of human treason and pay the penalty, satisfying the claims of justice so that the human race could be freed from the authority of Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of, of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and given the right to receive the nature of God. See, John 1, 12 says, says that about the nature of God. He says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. An incarnation fact. The incarnate one could not be born by natural generation. And we've already seen that in the virgin birth. It was not possible for God to become a child who had been born of natural generation and make that one an incarnation. We have seen that by one man, death, the nature of Satan, entered into the world and passed upon all men. That by the one man, the entire human race died spiritually and was ruled by this spiritual death. That's the first excerpt from that. Now, I want to go, there's another excerpt because, you know, we talked up here about uh, this man, Jesus, the humanity and deity, that he could assume the obligations of human treason. Now, I wanted to clear that up a little bit because this next section is from the same book except Lesson 3, Man's Treason and the Results. So, uh, E.W. Kenyon wrote this. He said, Adam's sin of high treason brought the entrance of spiritual death into the life of humanity. Now, you may ask what, you know, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of, and a lot of it has been explained that the uh, actual sin of Adam was rebellion or disobedience because he didn't, he didn't do what uh, God had said. But E.W. Uh, Kenyon uh, puts it this way, Adam's sin of high treason brought the interest of spiritual death into life. But I want to just say what he, what he said about treason. Uh, the sin of Adam, this is another part I didn't put in here, but the sin of Adam was a crime of high treason. God, listen to this, God had conferred upon him the authority to rule the universe. Y'all, you remember that when he said, let us make him in our own image and give him dominion. He said the universe-wide dominion was the most sacred heritage of God, that, of, that heritage God could give to man. Adam turned this legal dominion over into the hands of God's enemy, Satan. This sin is un unpardonable. High treason has been so considered in all ages. Adam's transgression was done in the white light of absolute knowledge. He was not deceived by Satan. He understood the steps that led to the crime. His wife, Eve, was deceived, but Adam became the Benedict Arnold of eternity. Paul wrote in, in his uh, letter to in 1 Timothy, he wrote his, to Timothy, he said, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So see, Adam knew fully what he was doing. He took of the, of the fruit when, when uh, Eve gave it to him, and he disobeyed God, uh, and he basically turned over the rule of the world to Satan. Romans 5.12 gives us a picture of spiritual death. We're continuing with this in, on uh, uh, page 4, or it is in my book anyway. 
uh, as a picture of a spiritual death awaiting an entrance into the spirit of man. Man's sin is the door that throws, throws open his spirit to the entrance of this dread nature. Uh, this is what Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, uh, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Most of our teaching in regard to the fall of man is centered in the entrance of physical death. We have seen in our last lesson that the real man is the spirit, and he has to walk in fellowship with God, a spirit being. Remember, we're created a spirit being. We're a spirit. We have a soul, and we live in a body. So we're a triune being. It was into this spirit of man created in the image of God that death entered. Matter of fact, he makes, in his book, he, he writes, there's one spot on there where basically he says that when he gave up his, his uh, and, and spiritual death entered, basically he said he was born again into death. Because remember, when Adam was created, he was, he was created in the image of God. He had no sin until the fall. He was he was full of glory. He was, he was in, in the image of God. He had full control over the earth. God had given him that. And then so then when he turned it over to uh, Satan, then he committed high treason. And that's why this, you know, this writer puts it that way. There are three kinds of death that are mentioned in the Scripture. Physical death, spiritual death, and the, and the second death. Physical death is a violent, unnatural thing, the separation of man's spirit and his soul from his body. Spiritual death is more violent and unnatural to humanity. It is the separation of man's spirit from God. Ephesians 4.18 says, Having their understanding darkened, then being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. See, all men are like that. Every man, until you're born again, you, you, your understanding is darkened. You are alienated from the life of God. You have no relationship with God until you are born again. The second death is an eternal separation of man from God in a state of existence where the nature of God is no longer and shall never be accessible to man. We can read in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where, the, where we talk about the great white throne judgment. Uh, the apostle John was writing this, and he said, Then I saw, this is what was revealed to him in, in Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See, if you're, if you're born again believer and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your, book, your name is in that book of life. So you don't have to worry about this judgment here. This book of life was cast. So anybody, if your book is not, I mean, if your name is not in that book, then that's the ones that's going to have to worry about it. If Jesus had been born of natural generation and God had come into him, he would have been a child of Satan with God dwelling in him. That would have not, that would have not, that would not have been an incarnation. That it utterly destroys the thought of a perfect incarnation of God. If, on the other hand, God could have eradicated spiritual death from the spirit of one man and dwelt in him, making that one an incarnation, he could have changed the nature of the entire human race in the same way. That wasn't going to work either. 
to do this would have been an injustice to Satan and an injustice to himself. For the sin problem had not been settled. The penalty of man's transgression had not been paid. The Redeemer must be one one over whom Satan had no legal claims nor authority. This could only come by a Redeemer being conceived and born as the babe of Bethlehem. And that babe of Bethlehem was God that was born into human flesh. This provides us with a... So that, that was the end of the excerpt there, but I thought that was... That was give us some good understanding of what uh, what we're up against, what mankind is up against when we're talking about the spiritual death, where it come from, how it went through uh, the ages and, and has been um, transmitted to all men uh, since then. We'll get into some more scripture that uh, goes along with that. But I think this gives us a good lead into the study uh, segment of essentials of our Christian faith, this particular one, the substitutionary blood atonement of Jesus Christ. The, the, what does it mean? Well, of course, everyone knows what anything that's substitutionary, a person or a thing that is taking the place of another. Another word used is vicarious. If you've ever heard somebody say that I, I live vicariously through them or something like that, meaning substitute, you know, or, or uh, uh, vicarious means uh, doing something substitutionary. And then, of course, atonement. There's, there's two different atonements. There's Old Testament use, and then there's the New Testament use. And so I want to I uh, go over both of these because they're, they're different. Old Testament atonement, Hebrew word for that is kafar, to cover, make atonement, or make reconciliation, to appease or pacify, to clear, purge, or cleanse. So the word kipper which comes from the, is, is an important derivative atonement familiar uh, to us due to use in uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the sixth feast when we were studying the Feast of the Lord. So that was the Day of Atonement. Yom, Yom means day and Kippur means atonement. And it's also used in Genesis 6.14, if you want to go back and look at that, uh, where Noah was instructed to cover the ark with pitch. That very word, atonement or kafar, is used in there. Basically, it's covered, and it's a picture of, of atonement. It's a picture of how God covered the ark with the pitch so water couldn't come into the, to the ark, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a very good picture of, uh, and, and see, uh, the ark is, is symbolic, or it's a type and a shadow of our salvation to start with, because eight souls were saved in that ark um, as a result of the flood. So in the New Testament atonement, it's a different word. It's it's kata lage, uh, which means uh, reconciliation. It's as far as I could find. It's only used in one place, and that's Romans. Uh, as far as the King James version, uh, it's it's uh, Romans five eleven. We'll cover that here in just a little bit. But kata uh, lage means reconciliation, restoration as a resulting of Christ exactly, precisely. This this is right out of Strong's uh, book. Uh, uh, concordance, exactly precisely exchanging his right, righteousness or blood for our guilt. Also to be reconciled, which is a derivative word of uh, that. Uh, and most interpretations, most translations will say in that pl place where atonement is in the King James Version, it will say reconciliation. Uh, to change, exchange, reestablish, restore relationship, make things right, and remove an enmity. In the New Testament use of the word, Jesus is appeasing or pacifying a requirement 
the penalty for sin, making things right on our behalf and removing our guilt. Isn't that a time for a hallelujah moment right there? I mean, when you think about that, he took, he's removing our guilt. Wow. Think about that. Jesus, as the substitutionary blood atonement, took our place in punishment for sin. It was a legal act whereby Jesus fulfilled the law. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I come to fulfill it. This was Jesus fulfilling the law and lawfully or legally paid the penalty for all of mankind's sin. Our sin, our sins are not temporarily covered as they were in the Old Testament atonement when we studied the feast. Remember, that was a, a deal that they, every year the high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies one time, and that covered the sins for another year. Well, our sins are not temporarily covered now. They are taken away. They should be taken instead of take. But they are taken away. I, was, I should have put uh, two verses in there to look at. If you want to look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, there's a couple of scriptures that help us understand that takeaway part of it and uh, the difference between the Old Testament atonement and the New Testament atonement. Atonement is atonement, but it, it has a totally is, and that's why the New New Covenant is a better covenant. Hebrews 9, verse 12, and I, I encourage you to read the whole, uh, actually the whole book of Hebrews, but the whole uh, chapter of 9 gives us a good explanation of what Jesus did um, uh, and, and how, you, you know, the things about his atonement and what happened, you know, from the time he entered into the Holy of Holies up there. But let's read what it says in Hebrews 9. Uh, let me read this to you if you don't have your Bible open, but I'll read it to you. 9, verse 12. Uh, the writer says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, talking about Jesus, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, if you skip down to verse 25 and 26 of the same chapter, there, it helps us. But keep in mind, that one says the, he, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26 it says this, uh, there, and there's other scriptures that go along with this, but I'm just kind of trying to condense it down. Not that he should offer, talking about Jesus again, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. In verse 26, he said he, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, he put away sin once and for all. The penalty was paid once and for all. All the sin was covered. The sins of the past, the sins of the present, the sin of the future was paid for by that one sacrificial death on the cross that he did, the sacrificial blood atonement. So from the beginning, when first, when back to our notes, from the beginning when sin first entered the world through Adam's sin, the sacrifice of blood was set as the penalty for covering or paying for sin. Blood was the cost or price paid. Genesis 3.21 is the foreshadowing of, of substitutionary blood atonement covering for man's sin. Remember of what here it says, 3.21. He says uh, that they had sinned and they were fixing to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. But he says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Remember, they had gone off and thought they were hiding and they had put uh, made themselves... Um, uh, clothes of, of uh, fig leaves and or, or leaves and trying to cover them trying to cover themselves because then their eyes were opened 
because they had li they had uh, listened to Satan and had uh, committed to high treason, had to uh, eat of the uh, from the uh, fruit of the tree of the, uh, of, of uh, good and evil of the knowledge of good and evil. In that, so God, in His mercy and grace, He shed the blood of innocent animals to clothe Adam and Eve and demonstrate the way of salvation to them as a type and a shadow of the Savior to come and what would have to be done. See, innocence had to be shed for the guilty, even then. And he showed that uh, in that first, uh, when he, when he uh, killed animals to cover them with tunics of skin. This demonstrates the gospel message in symbolism, that blood had to be shed to cover the sin and that the death of the innocent in the Old Testament, it was un unblemished lambs or bullocks or sinless Jesus in the New Testament had to take the place for the guilty, which shows substitution. That's why we call it substitutionary uh, blood atonement. John the Baptist, the first time he saw Jesus coming down the road, he, he said this in John 129. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, believe me, those people that were... John was baptizing and the people that were around him, they knew what, what it meant when they said the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because they, were, they knew that the, the, the Lamb was a, a sacrificial animal. And he was making that statement, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away, there it is again, the sin of the world. So another way of saying it is this, that man had nothing to do, has nothing to do with the securing of his salvation, that it was all done for him, beginning in the Garden of Eden, and ultimately uh, for everyone culminating in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Here's some other examples in Scripture of doctrine of the doctrine of substitution. We remember these uh, accounts in Genesis 22, uh, 13. Uh, Abraham was taking Isaac to Mount Moriah and, and uh, was under uh, God's command to take his son and offer him as a sacrifice. He said, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. See, God provided a substitute in that case. And Jesus, the suffering servant, uh, in, as, as described in Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 through 6, look at all the places in here. See how many places you can say, look in this, in this passage in Isaiah where he was substituted for us. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's two places right there, born and carried. Yet, he, yet we esteemed him stricken. He was stricken instead of us. He was smitten by God, and he was afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his old. You see how many places right there where he was our substitute, how many places we should have been in there, but he took all those things for us. Galatians 3.13 says this, Paul writing, uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, he was cursed, Jesus was cursed, in order that we might be blessed. First Peter uh, 2.24, uh, Peter writes, he says, Who himself bore our sins in his body, in his own body, on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He, he, he bore our sins on the, on the tree, and his stripes, by his stripes, we were healed. 
1 Peter 3.18 says, for, P for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Who's the unjust? We're the unjust, right? And he's the just. He's the just for the unjust. That we, that's, I mean, that's the substitution right there. He, the just, was sacrificed for those of us that are, that are the unjust, that he might bring, to a, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. So God in his great mercy and grace never expected us to be able to pay the penalty for our sins. It would have been impossible anyway because we were under the dominion of Satan, under the doctrine of sin and death. The price was too great, and we were incapable of being able to do it by our own power and will. See, there's no way we could have lived a perfect life. We were under that, uh, under the doctrine of sin and death, under the dominion of Satan. We were basically uh, children of Satan, and we couldn't have done it if we, if we, even at our, uh, if if we could have tried for a million years, we could have never lived the righteous life. The Bible says our righteousness is or like filthy. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Uh, I can't remember the the verse exactly where that's at, but uh, we can find it. But and in Romans Romans three uh, verses twenty three through twenty five, it says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because." In his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Propitiation literally means mercy seat. We've talked about that when we did the seats, but I mean the feast. But when basically what that word means is Jesus is our mercy seat. Quoted from the study Bible, this is what it says: is the work of Christ on the cross in which he met the demands of, of the righteousness of God against sin, both satisfying the requirements of God's justice and canceling the guilt of man. 1 John 2.2, 2, And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know, I, was, I, was, I remembered something when I was uh, studying this and putting it together, but there was a, a lot of you have probably read uh, Dutch Sheets' book, um, intercessory prayer and he wrote a there was a segment in there and he was talking about uh, uh, I hope I got it written down hang on I know I wrote it down but there was a quote from him in there that uh, kind of a summary of, of what Yes, when he, when he was talking about how, how important it was for prayer and, and, and the power of prayer and things like that, but he was talking about God creating man in his image. And, and it was, it was, man was so close to God's image that in his, you know, his uh, uh, statement in there, he, he, he made a statement in there that he, they were, he was so close. This was when he still, before the fall, before sin, that when animals look sometimes, in other words, the image meant is a Hebrew word uh, to see them. It means a shadow, a phantom, or an illusion. In other words, he was so made so close to God that the animals actually thought he, you know, mistaken him could have mistaken him for God because he carried the glory of God while he was still there. That's what he lost whenever he sinned. Uh, you know, that's why he was naked because he no longer had the glory of God on him. So uh, Dutch Sheets writes writes this. He says. 
Adam was comparable to or similar to God, so much like God that it was illusionary. In other words, it was like an illusion. You could look at him, and if you didn't look at him real close, at a glance, you could have said that, that was God. God was recognized in Adam, which meant that Adam carried the weight here on earth. Adam was God's governor or manager here uh, on earth. He was the governor. Basically, he was the one that ruled the earth. The earth was Adam's assignment. It was under Adam's charge or care. Adam was the watchman or guardian. And how things went on the earth, on planet earth, for better or worse, depended on Adam and his offspring. That shows you how important that uh, man's role was in there. And when it says, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's basically saying that all of us, have, because of through Adam's sin, we no longer had that glory uh, upon us and the glory of God. So that glory will not be restored until you're born again. Jesus was the appeasement and conciliation forever to God. His substitutionary sacrifice, if we accept it by faith for what it is, brings us into a position of favor and reconciliation before him. The finished work on the cross, his blood shed for us, provides the way to the right position or relationship and keeps us in the right position or relationship according to 1 John 1, 9. And y'all have heard this many times. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His blood still works, his, and we, but we have to confess it. We have to name that sin, and we have to confess it in order to get forgiveness for it, but it's still working for us, and we just have to stay under that. So... Uh, another part here I wanted to the singular act let's just continue the singular act of atonement or reconciliation provided by the death of Jesus on the cross has its origins in divine love scripture confirms it throughout the Bible this is the part I want you to see this this last part when we talk about it John three sixteen. of course we all know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the mercy seat for our sins. This does not mean that God loves us because God, Christ died for us. Rather, it means that Christ died for us because God loves us. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because atonement issues from love, it can only be and always will be seen as a divine gift and never as human achievement. William Barclay, a Scottish uh, theologian, wrote in his book, The Study of Romans, this is the segment he wrote, he says, Sometimes it may seem as though in the sacrificial blood atonement that on one side we have a gentle and loving Jesus and on the other an angry and vengeful God waiting to pour out his wrath on sinners. And as if Jesus in his death had done something to change the attitude of God toward men. Nothing could be further from the truth. The whole matter springs from the love of God. Jesus did not come to change God's attitude to men. He came to show what is and always was. He came to prove undeniably that God is love. John 15, 13, Jesus said this. He said, greater love has no one than this, 
than to lay down one's life for his friends. God came for two reasons on this earth. He came to redeem us with his blood, but he also came to show us God and God's love by doing the things he did in this world. So it all boils down to this, that he came to prove through his death on the cross and the acts that he did and all the things that he did to prove undeniably that God is love and that as we accept that love and we accept that sacrifice, we can be born again and once again be restored to a right relationship with God. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.